Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Leviticus chapter 17. Today we're going to talk about goat demons, vampires, and perverts. And I can't tell you how badly I wanted to title my sermon that, but cooler heads prevailed. We're going to be looking at all of chapters 17 and 18 um, of the book of Leviticus. And it's, a, it's a, a bit of a longer passage, and there are parts of it that are, that are actually quite uncomfortable to read. Some people might be embarrassed at some of what we're going to read today, especially being read in church. But this is exactly the place that we need to read these things. See, I recently heard someone say something to the effect of, as goes the pulpit, so goes the culture. And so we can clearly see this is, this is actually true in all of our society. Um, as one example, here's what I mean about this. There were women in, in the pulpit long before there were women in combat. Have you considered that? See, when the church disregards God's law then there can be no way that the, the culture, our society, will pay any attention to it. It will jettison it as soon as it can. And so we're going to read this. And the, and the very reason that I'm actually preaching through the book of Leviticus is to transform us as a church. And as we are transformed, we will eventually, remember we're, we're playing the long game here, we will eventually see a transformation of society to some extent. It's going to start local. It's going to happen as you hold fast to God's Word, as you, your family, stand firm in the faith, as you have children and raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. It will happen as you run your businesses and, and do your jobs in a, in a godly fashion, with your hand to the plow, working so as to please the Lord and, and not men. It's going to start small, and we will see as we have a continued transformation of this church, and that in turn will spread to, to other ministries that our folks are involved in, like New Path, weekday religious education, and so forth. And from there, it will spread through our community because all of this is great commission work, making disciples. However, for today, many people are not used to having long passages of the Bible read out loud to them. We've already read one long passage. Um, in fact, modern uh, sort of educational philosophy and public speaking experts will tell you not to do this that you, dear listener, cannot handle this. But what do they know? The Lord Himself says in Isaiah chapter 55, verses 10 and 11, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that for which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it says the Lord. We believe that the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. We believe that the public reading of Scripture will take effect in the hearts of those who hear it. And then furthermore, when we read, when we consider this passage, chapters 17 and 18 of Leviticus, when we consider this all together, as we work through these this morning, I I think you'll see that they are connected and even have application for us today. So let's read this. Leviticus chapters 17 and 18. Leviticus 17, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons and to all the people of Israel and say to them, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded. If any one of the house of Israel kills an ox or a lamb or a goat in the camp or kills it outside the camp and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it as a gift to the Lord in front of the tabernacle of the Lord, blood guilt shall be imputed to that man. He has shed blood 
and that man shall be cut off from among his people. This is uh, to the end that the people of Israel may bring their sacrifices that they sacrifice in the open field, that they may bring them to the Lord, to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and sacrifice them as sacrifices of peace offerings to the Lord. And the priest shall throw the blood on the altar of the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting and burn the fat for a pleasing aroma to the Lord. So they shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons after whom they whore. This, is, uh, this shall be a statute forever for them throughout their generations. And you shall say to them, any one of the house of Israel or any of the strangers who sojourn among them who offers a burnt offering or sacrifice and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it to the Lord, that man shall be cut off from his people. If any one of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Therefore I have said to the people of Israel, No person among you shall eat blood, neither shall any stranger who sojourns among you eat blood. And any, uh, anyone also of the people of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them who takes in hunting any beast or bird that may be eaten shall pour out its blood and cover it with earth. For the life of every creature is its blood. Its blood is its life. Therefore I have said to the people of Israel, you shall not eat of the blood of any creature. For the life of every creature is its blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off. And every person who eats what dies of itself or what is torn by beasts, whether he's a native or a sojourner, shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. Then he shall be clean. But if he does not wash them or bathe his flesh, he shall bear his iniquity. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. None of you shall approach any one of his close relatives to uncovered nakedness. I am the Lord. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, which is the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is your father's nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your sister, your father's daughter, or your mother's daughter, whether brought up in the family or in another home. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your son's daughter or of your daughter's daughter, for their nakedness is your own nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife, uh, wife's daughter brought up in your father's family since she is your sister. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's sister. She is your father's relative. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your mother's sister for she is your mother's relative. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's brother. That is, you shall not approach his wife. She is your aunt. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your daughter-in-law. She is your son's wife. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. It is your brother's nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of a woman and her daughter and, and shall not uh, take her son's daughter or her daughter's daughter to uncover her nakedness. They are relatives. It is depravity. And you shall not take a woman uh, who is a rival wife to her sister uncovering her nakedness while her sister is still alive. You shall not approach a woman to uncover her nakedness while she is in her menstrual uncleanness. And you shall not lie sexually with your neighbor's wife so as to make yourself unclean with her. You shall not give any of your children to offer them to Molech and so profane the name of the Lord your God. I am the Lord. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. You shall not lie with any animal so as to make yourself unclean with it. Neither shall any woman give herself to an animal to lie with it. It is perversion. Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things, for by all these the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean, and the land became unclean. 
so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you shall keep my statutes and my rules, and do none of these abominations, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For the people of the land who were before you did all of these abominations, so that the land became unclean. Lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean, as it vomited out the nation that was before you. For everyone who does any of these abominations, the, person, the persons who do them shall be cut off from among their people. So keep my charge never to practice any of these abominable customs that were practiced before you and never to make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. I think we need to stop and pray. Father, what we don't have, I pray that you would give us. Lord, I pray that you would cause us to repent of our sin, to purify our hearts, to clear our minds, that we might focus only on you and your word today, and so be conformed to the image of Christ and walk in holiness. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we've been studying uh, God's law in the book of Leviticus, we've seen really throughout the book there's a bunch of different divisions. Um, so kind of by way of quick review, chapters 1 through 7, you probably remember, were all about the, the instructions and the, and the regulations regarding those, the various offerings and sacrifices that the, that the people of Israel were to bring to the tabernacle as they worshipped the Lord. Uh, those were the, the burnt offerings, the grain offerings, the peace offerings, the, the sin or what we sometimes call the, the purification offerings, the guilt offerings. And the law in those first several chapters of Leviticus, it addressed both, both the people bringing the offering and the priests who would receive the offerings from the people and bring them to the altar of the Lord. Then we looked at chapters 8, 9, and 10, which was more of a, a narrative about the institution of the, the Levitical priesthood. And so Aaron and his descendants who would serve in that role as high priest, and, and we saw that it didn't go well for a couple of his sons because they overstepped their authority. They brought a, a strange, unauthorized fire. Then from chapters 11 to 15 a few weeks ago, we saw the various laws about purity. Those were those laws of foods, restricting certain foods, and also about like mold and, and mildew and skin diseases and things like that. It all led up to the pinnacle chapter of the book of Leviticus, the peak of the book of Leviticus, chapter 16, and the Day of Atonement. This day really is the highest of holy days for the people of Israel. Because this was, this was the one day every year, once every year, where God's people would clearly see His mercy and His grace, His provision and the peace that can only come from Him. And they see this most clearly as their sins would be confessed and atoned for, covered and removed from them. Well, we've gotten through that. And for the rest of the book of Leviticus... We're going to be looking at laws of holiness, laws designed by the Lord himself that call upon the people of Israel to be holy as God is holy. It's not simply subjective, right? Being holy isn't something that's just subjective, good for you, but not necessarily good for me. They're to be holy by carrying out his laws, both the ritual or the ceremonial laws and the moral laws. And as a result, they must avoid the, the polluting practices of their pagan neighbors. So we have said that God's law, as we read through these things, it can be divided into, into three headings, and there's, there's certainly overlap between them. There's the civil law, the ceremonial law, and the moral law. The civil laws are those laws which pertain to, to national Israel, right? Um, speed laws, right? Click it or ticket type laws that pertain specifically to national Israel, taxes and such. 
Then there's the ceremonial laws. An example of those are the, are, are the foods that they could, could and could not eat, as well as those laws about the sacrifices. They were just for the Israelites, and they were not binding, they're not binding on us today because Christ has fulfilled them. The New Testament makes this clear. But the moral law, morally speaking, those moral laws are still in effect for us today. We are to continue to live in the way that God would have us live, to live holy and upright lives. Why? Well, first of all, because our setting, where we live, and this has really been true throughout all of history, our setting is not that different from, from the setting of the ancient Israelites. So, so look at chapter 18, verses 1 to 5. This is the setting of all of this, really all of, all of the book of Leviticus, all of God's law. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. The people of Israel were called to live. To use a, a, a Greek word, um, the New Testament word that you might be familiar with, they were, they were called to live as ekklesia, as called out ones. They were, they were to be completely distinct from the people around them. We've seen this as we've worked through this. From the foods that they ate to the sacrifices that they gave and even their holiness, they were to be completely distinct from all the nations around them. So just as the Lord called Abram in Genesis chapter 12, he said this, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so just as the Lord called Abram out of the pagan land of the, the Ur of the Chaldeans, later known as Babylon, file that one back for a few minutes from now, he also called the children of Abraham out of the pagan land now of the Egyptians. But he was leading them to the land that he would show them, to the land of Canaan, another pagan people. Do you, do you remember who the Canaanites were? Turn back to Genesis chapter 9. This is really important for us to understand why God is doing what he's doing here. Genesis chapter 9, um, following the flood, Noah and his family come out of the ark. I want to read for you the origin story of the people of the land of Canaan. So chapter 9, beginning in verse 18. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both of their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. 
After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years and he died. Whatever Ham's uh, specific sin was there, it was so bad that his descendants were cursed. And so one commentary described their sin as a moral abandonment. They abandoned all morality. We could use the Apostle Paul's words to describe them from Romans chapter 1. God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts. Now thematically in Genesis, as you think about the big picture of the Bible, the sin of the Canaanites... This immorality here, this moral abandonment, it was connected to the sin that triggered the judgment of the flood in the first place. Immorality. If you turn back a couple pages to Genesis chapter 6, I'm just going to read a few verses here. When man, beginning in verse 1, when man began to multiply in the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Here's what I want you to see. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and the birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. The sin, the sin of the creature there was so great that the Creator brought judgment yet showed grace to Noah. And yet Noah's son, his descendants, the Canaanites, once again sinned so greatly that God gave them up to do things that ought not to be done. And he would allow them to persist, to persist in this moral abandonment for a time. In fact, he tells Abraham when he establishes his covenant with him in, in chapter 15 of Genesis, you don't have to turn there, that it's only going to last a very specific amount of time. See, the Lord would let the people of Canaan continue in their sin until one day he will finally judge. We see this judgment begin in the book of Joshua when God's chosen people were to conquer the promised land. Israel was to be the means by which God would judge the Canaanites, the sinners. See, the Lord, the Lord generally uses means. In fact, usually ordinary means to accomplish His will. And in the case of the judgment of the pagan, unholy Canaanites, the ordinary means was to be the holy and conquering armies of Israel. But they must be holy. We know for us that one day God will bring a final judgment. But for now, God is accomplishing His will through the holy and conquering church of Jesus Christ, against which the gates of hell don't stand a chance because the weapons of our warfare are the sword of the Spirit and the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what's the common denominator here? It's holiness. Holiness. This setting out of Egypt, into the promised land of Canaan. All of these prohibitions here in chapters 17 and 18, really and beyond throughout the whole book, all of this are sins that, the, that these pagan Canaanites were involved in. They were even celebrating these things. And the people of God were to have nothing to do with them. 
They were called to live as a completely set-apart people, holy to the Lord. But I want you to notice that the place that he starts is not with the external activity of chapter 18. It's actually with the heart and with thankfulness at the beginning of chapter 17. Thankfulness or gratitude. Let me read this again. Keep the word thankfulness in your mind. Just the first part of this chapter, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his sons and all the people of Israel and say to them, this is the thing the Lord has commanded. If any one of the house of Israel kills an ox or a lamb or a goat in the camp or kills it outside the camp and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it as a gift to the Lord in front of the tabernacle of the Lord, blood guilt shall be imputed to that man. He shed blood. That man shall be cut off from among his people. This is the end that the people of Israel may bring their sacrifices that they sacrifice in the open field, that they may bring them to the Lord, to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting and sacrifice them as sacrifices of peace offerings to the Lord. Now, there are two ways that we can actually um, interpret or understand the meaning of these verses. First, remember now that the, the tabernacle... Uh, the, the sort of the portable temple, the house of God, has been completed. Remember that the priesthood has been established and the instructions regarding the sacrifices have been given. And so therefore, there is no longer any need for what we might call family sacrifices. So he, consider Job, for example, who lived earlier than this. In Job chapter 1, verse 5, it says this, When the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, that is his children, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. These were family sacrifices. He, was, he wanted to cover the sins of his children just in case. So Job, as the head of the family, he would offer these sacrifices on behalf of his children. But now, under the law. Now, as the, as the temple, the tabernacle has been uh, constructed and, and, the, and the priesthood has been established and the instructions of the sacrifices have been given, now the people are to bring these sacrifices to the priests who will then take on that responsibility of offering them to the Lord. And so that's at least part of what is going on here. We're not doing uh, family uh, sacrifices out in the fields, he says, anymore. We're, we have a specific format. Worship is to be done decently and in order and in the way that the Lord has instructed and in the place that he has given, not just all throughout the countryside as every man sees fit. With the giving of the law, God requires his people whom he has redeemed with outstretched arm, he, he requires them to worship him in his way. But then secondly, verses 3 and 4 here in particular seem to indicate that any butchering of animals at all, particularly for sacrifice, but also possibly even just for family consumption, a barbecue, all of it needed a sacrificial offering. In other words, whenever God provided a meal for the people, they were to give thanks by offering a portion back to him. And of course, they did this by bringing it to the priests in the tabernacle, in the tent of meeting. For us, we can go to the Lord and pray and say Thank you, God, for this food, right? We do this all the time. I'm sure as families you do this. But for them, they needed to go to the temple. They needed to bring it to, or to the tabernacle. They needed to bring it to the priests. I actually think that the meaning of this is both of these things because of verses 5 and 6. So there was to be no more, no more private worship or pub, private sacrifices, as I said, out in the open fields. Rather, they are to bring them to the priests who would perform the proper ritual. And we see that there. 
And this brings us to goat demons in verse 7. Let me read this verse again. So they shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons after whom they whore. This shall be a statute forever for them throughout their generations. Every once in a while you read through God's Word and you find something that just seems to come from out of nowhere. This is one of those places. This goat demon um, is one word in Hebrew, and it's where we get the word Seder from, S-A-T-Y-R. Have you ever heard of a Seder? A Seder is a mythological creature that is half man, half goat. You've probably seen some representation of that at some point in a movie or in a cartoon or something. Here's a modern dictionary definition. This is, you can look this up. A satyr is a woodland creature in human form, yet depicted as having the pointed ears, legs, and horns of a goat, as well as a fondness for unrestrained revelry and licentiousness. Unrestrained revelry and licentiousness. So, are they real? Well, demons are real. And the way of the world in Genesis chapter 6 that we read a few minutes ago, that indicates that the spiritual world, I don't know if you caught this when we read it, but it indicates that the spiritual world had crossed over and was involved in great immorality, great licentiousness with the physical world. There's a connection there. So let's make this connection for us. Verse 7 seems to indicate that there were people of Israel who were probably secretly out in the fields sacrificing to these goat demons. And we know that they have already, the people of Israel, have already flirted with idolatry and sexual immorality back when they made the golden calf in Exodus as Moses was on the mountain getting the law. And we know that the land to which they were going, the land of the Canaanites, was steeped, as well as the land from which they came, Egypt, were steeped in these pagan occultic practices. They were surrounded by this. We also know by the time we get to the book of Judges, if you're familiar with Judges, when they were living in the promised land of Canaan but had failed to completely wipe out all of the land, all of the people that God told them to and they were letting some live there, we know that Israel will be living in the book of Judges in unrestrained revelry and licentiousness. And we see this in the phrase that's repeated throughout the book of Judges. There was, in those days, there was no king in the land and every man did what was right in his own eyes. What is the roots of all of this licentiousness and immorality? I'm going to give you a hint. It's not actually whatever this goat demon is. It's ingratitude. It's thanklessness. In Romans chapter 1, Paul says it explicitly. Romans 1, 21 says this, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. And they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things like goat demons. Therefore God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Once once ingratitude toward God takes root, the next stop is immorality. Have you ever considered that? Once a thanklessness toward God takes root in our hearts, the next stop is immorality. Paul will write in 2 Timothy chapter 3, he says, understand this, in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, 
Lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people, he says. How many, how many times throughout the Bible both Old and New Testament, are God's people, the people of Israel in the Old Testament, Christians in the New, how many times are we called to give thanks? To give thanks. I, I don't know the answer to that. A lot. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Often, the concept of giving thanks, approaching God with a thankful heart, is connected to, to corporate worship, to the gathered together of the saints. Have you ever noticed that? Just listen to a few passages. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon His name. Make known His deeds among the peoples. From the book of Revelation. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Or how about from the book of Colossians? Paul writes, And above all these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Three times we are commanded to be thankful, to give thanks. And a failure to give thanks to God leads to dire consequences. Look at, he says in verse eight, and you shall say, so Leviticus 17, eight, and you shall say to them, any one of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them who offers a burnt offering or sacrifice and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it to the Lord, that man shall be cut off from among his people. Now from thankfulness, the Lord now proceeds to give instructions regarding the thing for which we must be most thankful. Lifeblood. Lifeblood. Again in verse 10. If anyone of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and he shall be cut off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it uh, for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Therefore I have said to the people of Israel, No person among you shall eat blood, neither shall any stranger who sojourns among you eat blood. And it goes on from there. Anyone living among the people of God, whether Israelite or sojourner, people passing through, they were prohibited from eating blood. And anyone who did so made himself an enemy of God. That is strong language coming from the Lord. Made himself an enemy of God. Now, the modern vampire myth is clearly connected here. And lest you think I'm just a little nuts, you probably... Maybe for other reasons, but let me explain. The modern vampire story has roots in ancient Babylonian idolatry. In fact, listen to Proverbs chapter 30, 
verses 15 and 16, but I'm going to read it from the King James, okay? Proverbs 30, verse 15 says this, the horse leech hath two daughters crying, give, give. There are three things that are never satisfied, yea, four things that say not it is enough. The grave, the barren womb, the earth that is not filled with water, and the fire that saith not it is enough. Now, the English Standard Version that we usually use, that uses the word leech there, just leech. King James uses horse leech. Um, leech isn't the right translation. The Hebrew word there is aluka. Some interpreters translate that in other ancient documents. The only time it's used in the Bible anywhere. But some uh, interpreters translate in other ancient documents as bloodlusting monster. It actually has teeth and is not small like a leech. It's a large monster that is lusting after blood. Now, so that we don't get off track, here is what is plain to us from Scripture. Beginning in Genesis chapter 11, Babel, or Babylon, is always seen as the enemy of God. So much so, in fact, turn to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 17. So much throughout the scripture is Babylon seen representative as, uh, uh, of an en the enemy of God that Revelation chapter 17, verses 1 to 6 says this. There's just a few things I want you to notice. Don't get too sidetracked with either vampires or uh, the prophecy of the end times, but just, let's just read through this. Then one of the seven angels who had seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit in, into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written the name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus." Now, there's imagery all in this. We're not going to get into the imagery, but you can see the connection here. Then just look at chapter 18, verse 1. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning, since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. Okay, what does that have to do with Leviticus 17 and 18? Simply this. Satan and his demons 
do everything they can to pervert and distort God's good gifts. Everything. Look at verse 17, verse 11 again. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Throughout the Bible, throughout the scriptures, blood is not merely seen as a, as a symbol of life. It actually is the life. And so draining of the blood from the animal there in chapter 17, it's a graphic picture that life has been taken. And furthermore, the sprinkling of blood of the sacrifice on the altar was a picture, is a reminder that the wages of sin is death. This is, this is all a reminder to us as well that all of life belongs to God. And so to consume blood in any way was to make it common and even profane. It is the practice of the demonic. It is the practice of Babylon, the evil. That's Revelation 17. We also know that the blood of the sacrifices that it's a, it's a type, it's a foreshadow of the shed blood of Christ for our sin. In fact, Jesus even uses this kind, of, this kind of graphic language in order to weed out some of those who are following him just for the show, just for the, just for the miracles and the, and the healings. Near the end of John chapter 6, he actually says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Now, clearly, in John, he's using, he's using figurative language. Uh, of course, there were some who interpreted it literally. And it says in verse 66 of John chapter 6 that they no longer followed him. They thought he was nuts. What's this guy talking about? Cannibalism? He's talking about receiving him by faith. When Jesus speaks of his flesh throughout John's gospel, he's speaking of the life that he gives to free us from sin and death. He's speaking of his atoning sacrifice on the cross. And so when Jesus breaks the bread at the Last Supper and he says, this is my body, he's referring to his work on the cross. But the world... The world, the flesh, and the devil, they always take the good gifts of God and they twist them and distort them. They make them perverse and disgusting. They're, they're negative images of what God has always intended. And so things like this, this vampire myth, this, this blood-eating cult, uh, something that has persisted uh, since the days of Babylon because the demonic are working to pervert the life that only comes through the shed blood of the sacrificial atonement of Jesus Christ. That's what's going on. That's why these myths still exist out there. And when we eat of the bread and drink of the cup at the Lord's Supper, we're actually reclaiming this perversion. We're reclaiming it as being the beautiful sacrament that it is. The proclamation of the payment for our sin and the gift of eternal life that comes only through Jesus Christ. And the one thing that you may have picked up all through this, through all of this, is the running theme of licentiousness or immorality. And immorality is the specialty of demons. Whether we're talking about those, those satyr goat demons or the Aluka bloodlusting demons, there is a clear connection to immoral, perverted behavior in all of this. 
That brings us to the repetitive commands of chapter 18. The purity versus perversion of chapter 18. Really, verses 6 to 23. I'm not going to read all of it again. The context is actually, not only is it repetitive, it's also really straightforward. You can read it and understand it. It means exactly what it says. But I want you to see the connections here. So beginning at the start of chapter 17, okay, if the Israelites did not approach the Lord as he required with thankful hearts, if they did not preserve the sanctity of their blood sacrifices to the Lord, then they would soon act like the pagans. God would give them up to do the things that ought, that ought not be done. And so the chapter opens, not only with the context that I already mentioned, they're coming out of Egypt into the land of Canaan, the Canaanites, but also with a, notice, there's a restatement of God's covenant promises. How many times in those first five or six verses of chapter 18 does he say, I am the Lord? Look at just verses 4 and 5. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. A person who does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. He is reiterating his covenant promises, the covenant that he has made with his people. It's important that this section be be codified into law because these are the practices of both the Egyptians and the Canaanites. And so here the people of God are prohibited from practicing any of this kind of, let's just call it pornographic immorality. Don't miss the phrases that God uses here. He uses this phrase, uncover their nakedness, over and over and over again. It's a a reference back to the original sin of their family line. Genesis chapter 9, verses 22 and 23. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father, told his brothers outside. And Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on their, both their shoulders, walked backward, not looking, covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward. They did not see their father's nakedness. God is saying this. Holiness... Holiness is staying far away from any of this kind of immorality because it only leads to death and destruction. This whole family line has rejected God, and so he has given them over to their lusts. And he's going to use his holy people to pour out his judgment on them. And, And by the way, Genesis... 10 lists the genealogies of Noah's sons. Let me just give you a few of the people and nations that come from this line. See if any of them are familiar. Come from the line of Ham and Canaan. So the sons of Ham, it begins in Genesis chapter 10. Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan, four sons. One of Canaan's nephews would go on to father the Babylonians. Another would settle in Assyria and established the city of Nineveh. Another fathered the line from which the Philistines came. Canaan's own descendants would settle eventually near a couple of towns that you may have heard of, Sodom and Gomorrah. But there's another, there's another connection to all of this that we shouldn't miss. I've mentioned that God's enemies whether that's the world, the flesh, or the devil, God's enemies are always looking to undo the good gifts that God has given us. Listen to Genesis chapter 3, verse 21. This is God's mercy. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and covered them, clothed them. Evil, sinful, demonic, people uncover what God has covered, undoes or tries to undo what God has done. And be very careful to notice that in the midst, even in the midst of all of this sin that's very clearly, chapter 18, very clearly sexual in nature, we find verse 21. 
Leviticus 18.21, do not give any of your children to offer them to Molech, and so profane the name of, the, of your God, I am the Lord. Abortion is not, and never ever can be, as the world continues to try to say, health care. It's so clearly a pagan religious practice directly connected with licentiousness and immorality. It is a pagan sacrament intended to destroy the good blessings of God. I am not exaggerating when I say that children are always a blessing from the Lord. Always. This is exactly why the demonic wants destruction and death. We can, we can snicker at goat demons, vampires, and perverts, but taking any of this lightly, dismissing these things as either, either not real or worse, not my problem, that's exactly why we are in this place today as, as a society. The church needs to stand firm and be holy. So let me put it this way. I don't care. I don't care what the, if the world, I, I don't care if your friends think that your modesty, the way that you cover yourself, is silly or out of style. You're fighting a spiritual war. We're fighting a spiritual war here. A war for the men and women the boys and girls of the church. This is a spiritual war. And if you're content to let the world, the flesh, and the devil win, as has been the case for the last several decades, at least in our nation, then we can certainly disregard God's law and not pay attention to passages like this. That doesn't apply to me. But before you do, we need to listen to the word of the Lord in verses 24 to 30. Let me read this again. Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things, for by all these the nations I'm uh, driving out before you have become unclean, and the land became unclean, so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you shall keep my statutes and my rules and do none of these abominations, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For the people of the land who were before you did all of these abominations, so the land became unclean. Lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean, as it vomited out the nation that was before you. For everyone who does any of these abominations, the persons who do them shall be cut off from among their people. So keep my charge never to practice any of these abominable customs that were practiced before you and never to make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. We must not fall into this same trap. Holiness, modesty, purity today are seen as quaint at best. More often, it's actually mocked. But this is war. This is a spiritual war. And to lose the war means that we will be cut off and vomited out. But the war is not fought merely with outward action. It starts with a heart of thankfulness. And so let me finish with that charge from Colossians chapter 3. But I'm going to modify it slightly, and I'm telling you that I'm doing it. Instead of saying, put on, I'll say it like this. And above all these, cover up with love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And be thankful. Pray with me. Father, it is our prayer that we would have thankful hearts that we would be thankful for your good gifts, your good gifts of children, 
your good gifts of the way that you have provided for us food, shelter, but especially that you have provided for us salvation through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And so, Father, as we come to the table this morning to proclaim the death of Jesus Christ for our sins, we come as a people who are thankful. As a people who are thankful that you have saved us, that you have sent your Son to bear for us the iniquity of us all, that we might become the righteousness of Christ. So Lord, I pray that we would think on these things, that we would dwell on these things, that we would run from sin and run to Christ with thankful hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.